0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word with me again and open it once more to the book of Hebrews, uh, now to the last chapter in this sermon-like letter that the author of Hebrews wrote to Jewish background believers in the first century. Hebrews chapter 13, this morning we'll be in verses 1 through 6. We only have a few weeks left uh, in our study of Hebrews, and uh, I know you're very sad about that. I, I'm a little sad. The good news is the uh, uh, Hebrews doesn't go anywhere. It's going to be in your Bibles forever, so you can go back to it whenever you want. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, as we begin to wrap up this sermon series called Greater Than, we look at the life that is greater than any life in this world, life in the unshakable kingdom that Jesus brings us to. Uh, Very likely many of you in this room have had occasion to visit another country. Get your passport stamped and get on a plane land in another place, and maybe before you went on that trip, you took that international voyage, you probably took some time to learn some things about the nation that you were going to visit. What kind of language do they speak? If not English, you maybe admit taken some time to learn a few phrases, like uh, how to, uh, just to help you order off of a menu, how to find out where the restroom is, you know, all the really important ones. You may have taken some time to, to study maybe cultural events uh, in the life of that, that nation that you're going to so that if there's a, maybe a parade or a festival or something going on while you visit, you can join in in a sort of knowledgeable way so you can get along in that country and make the most exciting time of your visit. Visiting another country is one thing, but moving to and becoming a citizen of another country is, is something else altogether. If you're moving to another country, you don't simply learn a few phrases to help you order off a menu and find the restroom. You learn a whole new language so that you can do life and business uh, in a relatively normal way in that country. Uh, You do more than just do research about cultural aspects of that nation. You get to know the people who are there and you invest yourself in becoming a friend to your neighbors that will be there. You probably have to learn about that nation's history and maybe even take a, 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 an exam or a test to prove your ability to become a citizen of that nation. Visiting another country versus becoming a citizen of another country are two vastly different processes. The latter, becoming a citizen of a different country, requires usually taking on whole new patterns and habits of life, acculturating yourself to a a new people and a new kind of living. Last week we saw at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews encouraging those who have listened to receive the kingdom of God that cannot be shaken, to become citizens of a kingdom not of this world, and so to have their lives transformed. As we look at Hebrews 13, 1 through 6, the author here is speaking to his audience, telling them that believers who receive that unshakable kingdom of God with gladness live a certain way. They take on a new kind of life in that kingdom. They're not just there as visitors, they're there as citizens. And they live in that kingdom with charity, contentment, and commitment as citizens of Christ's kingdom. And this is our main idea for us today, that kingdom citizens, citizens of Christ's kingdom over which he rules and reigns, kingdom citizens live with godly charity, godly commitment, and godly contentment. As we come to see this idea in these verses this morning, I encourage us to pursue these characteristics as the body of Christ, as kingdom citizens, as those who have trusted Jesus by faith, who have been transformed by him to live this way in the world. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. The author continues in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is God's word. You may be seated. Kingdom citizens live with godly charity, commitment, and contentment. And now the author of Hebrews has been through all of the theological meat of what he's trying to convey to his audience, he now gets here, just in this last chapter, the practical implications of what all that means, that Jesus, the greater priest, the greater sacrifice, the greater temple, the one who brings us into an unshakable kingdom, now we have one chapter of implications for what life in that kingdom looks like. He begins with these three characteristics that uh, sort of progress in closer circles of intimacy, characteristics of the lives of a of kingdom citizens that that start with our relationship to those that are kind of outside of us, brothers, sisters, others, uh, closer in relationship to those that we're in covenant commitments with in marriage, and then closest to our own heart and our own desires. We see first in verses 1 through 3 that kingdom citizens, those who have received the kingdom of Christ, live with godly charity, which looks like loving the brotherhood. Let brotherly love continue, the author says in verse 1. Brotherly love is that Greek word Philadelphia. There's a city named after it in Pennsylvania. It's a city of brotherly love. That's what it means. It's a, a love of brother. And, and here in this context, the love, uh, uh, brotherly love that continues it has it, at least in mind love for the brotherhood of the saints. So love for the brothers and sisters that are within the assembly. Perhaps your translation of this verse says, let let love for the brothers and sisters continue. There is an aspect in which the brotherly love has has its first implication among the body that is the church of Jesus, but it also extends outward to others as well. Verse 1 is sort of the general command, and then verses 2 and 3 give more specific implications of what brotherly love looks like. Let brotherly love continue, which looks like, first of all in verse 2, hospitality for strangers. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This is one expression of Philadelphia, brotherly love. Hospitality was, in ancient times, nearly a universal virtue. There was hardly a place you could go in the world where hospitality was looked down upon. To open your home to, to to a traveler, to someone in need, was to take them under your care so long as they stayed with you. And it was good and right and encouraged in societies to do this. This kind of hospitality was an absolute necessity for early Christian missionaries and church planters, people like Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy, who, and many of the other unnamed letter carriers uh, who, who took the letters from the apostles to the churches throughout the day. They would not have had the safety and success that they did have in getting these letters to the churches and getting God's word throughout the world if it weren't for the hospitality of other Christians, welcoming them into their homes. Very often, Inns, hotels, so to speak, in those days were not the safest place to stay. You're at high risk of being robbed, maybe abused, maybe even killed, and so the hospitality of strangers was absolutely necessary. There's also the call here, not just to show hospitality to people who are like us, not just to show brotherly love to other Christians, but also to show neighborly love, brotherly love to those who are outside of the community of faith. This is what kingdom citizens do. People outside the community of faith. Uh, who are treated strangers who are treated like brothers we think here of the call of jesus in luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37 that parable of the good samaritan where there was a Jewish man who was beaten and left for dead on the side of the road, and two or three of his Jewish kinsmen, uh, even high-ranking officials, high-ranking individuals in the temple worship system, priests and Levites, passed by this man, left for dead. One of their kinsmen, a fellow Jew, left for dead. They passed by doing nothing for him. And then a Samaritan comes by, a man who was a natural enemy to the Jews, who stops picks this man up, puts him on his donkey, carries him into the nearest town, puts him up in an inn and pays for all of his expenses. Jesus says, brotherly love, neighborly love looks like this. The impetus, the the driving force for hospitality, for opening our homes, for opening our lives to others, is the blessing and serving of God without knowing it. uh, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, he says, because Some have done this and entertained angels without knowing that they were doing it. Here the author is probably referring to Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, that patriarch of the Israelite people, that, that first man who is declared righteous because of his faith in God's promise. Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 18, he there and his wife are visited by three men, one of whom is called the Lord. They don't recognize that he is, but the Lord in some sort of bodily form, perhaps a, a pre-incarnate version of, uh, a image, uh, appearance of Christ, along with two angels. And they entertain them, they, they feed them, they care for them as they are traveling and don't recognize who they are until after they've left. So the author of Hebrews says, show hospitality to everyone because sometimes you're doing it for the Lord. Brotherly love looks like hospitality to strangers. It also looks like care for those who are in prison and for those who are mistreated. Now, those who have been imprisoned and mistreated that the author is writing about here are not just generically those who have been imprisoned and mistreated, but more specifically, those who have been arrested and put into prison, those who have been beaten, have had property confiscated, those who have been uh, uh, arrested or, or embarrassed publicly because of their faith in Christ. The Hebrews who first read this letter would have known people, brothers and sisters in the faith, who were beaten, who had property taken away from them, who were disowned by their family, who were arrested and even imprisoned because of their faithfulness to Jesus. And this was a daily possibility for every Hebrew believer reading this letter in their own day. It was possible that after reading this letter aloud in their assembly, they could have on their way home been arrested for their faith when brothers or sisters and fellow Christians are imprisoned or mistreated. Other believers are not to revile their accusers, they're not to to lash out or seek vengeance against their abusers, but rather they give themselves in care for their brothers and sisters as they would hope to be cared for themselves. Kingdom citizens live with brotherly love that looks like hospitality to others and care for those within the body who have been imprisoned or mistreated. We see here this principle that hearts that have been opened by the grace of God to receive Christ as Lord find themselves opened also in love to others. Hearts that have been opened by the grace of God, hearts that have been changed by the love of God through faith in Jesus are also hearts that find themselves opening up in love and grace and charity to others. So this morning, Christian, as a citizen of Christ's kingdom, open your heart and love to others. Open your heart in love to others. Hearts that are open in love because of the grace of God that transforms them are hearts that are actively loving. They are not hearts that simply respond to the love and affection and care that other people give them. They are hearts that are actively looking for ways to be loving, to be charitable, to be generous to those who are in need. Hearts that are opened by God's grace through faith in Jesus both receive those who are in need and extend themselves to those who have need. Having a heart open in love to others, letting brotherly love continue requires, friends, at least within the body of faith of which you are a member, knowing other members and being known by others. In order to really love people well, you've got to know who they are, where they're coming from, what their circumstances, what their challenges in life are. And, and in order for them to love you, they need to know those things about you. And I get this is not a 21st century Western virtue to be transparent, to be honest with other people about what we're struggling with, about where we need help. But it's a biblical virtue. It's a Christian virtue. It's a kingdom citizen virtue. It's a trait of how we live. Christian, open your heart and love to others. Kingdom citizens live with charity. They also live, as verse 4 shows us, with godly commitment. Specifically, commitment that honors God's design for marriage and sexuality. Verse 4 says, let, the, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. This call to honor marriage certainly has the biblical expression of marriage as a monogamous, Lifelong covenant of complementary care and procreation between a man and a woman. Marriage as such is to be honored because God as creator of all things and creator of marriage has defined and designed it this way. Now, we don't have time to go through and do a whole biblical study of 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 marriage this morning, but we should know, should understand what the biblical sexual and marriage ethic is from Scripture as we come to this this morning. Marriage is a monogamous lifelong covenant of complementary care and procreation between a man and a woman. Now, this call to honor marriage has implications not just for married people, although especially for married people, but also for single persons as well. Now, for married people, if you're a man or a woman, you're married and you're reading this text this morning and you're wondering, what does this mean to me? First of all, for married persons, your covenant commitment to your wife or to your husband is best respected, it's best honored as we're instructed to here. When we hold that covenant highly in our minds, when we treat that covenant, that vow that we have made to love for better, for worse, for rich or poor, till death do us part, when we hold that with high priority in our hearts and our minds, marriage, dear friends, is a good thing but it is not our ultimate good. The pinnacle of Christianity is not heterosexual marriage. Married Christians are no better than single Christians. And so we should not force or push everyone to seek to be married because that somehow makes them a better Christian. Marriage is a good thing, but it is not our ultimate good. At the same time, it is a very good gift of God. And it's a covenant that God has given to us to exercise and to keep and to not be broken. So married people. Honor marriage. Let marriage be held in honor in your mind as you honor your covenant commitment to your husband, to your wife. A commitment that's not based on how you feel today or how the other person makes you feel today, but based upon a promise that you made before God and to them. Now, single people, this call to honor marriage has implications for you too, if you're not married. There are some of you that God may have gifted with singleness we don't often think about singleness as a gift of God, but Paul speaks about it that way in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. He says to the church at Corinth, Paul, presumably not being a married man himself, he says, I wish that everyone could be as I am, being single. Now, Paul understood his singleness as a gift of God that made him all the more able, all the more free to give his whole life in ministry, his whole life to the service of the gospel all around the world. Having a wife and having children is not a bad thing, but Paul saw it as a good thing that he didn't have either so that he wasn't constantly pulled down by cares for uh, and responsibility for family and for children so that he could pick up and move to any place that God would call him. Singleness is also a gift of God. But for those who have the gift of singleness, for those that God has called to live before him celibately and fully committed to Christ, marriage is not to be looked down upon or despised as a hindrance to kingdom ministry or as something that's spiritually inconvenient. You know, it is easy, it is possible for single people who know that God has called them to singleness to look on married people as like, yeah, that poor sap. She's stuck with that guy and those kids and she can't do anything for the kingdom. But she wishes she was single like me. Now, single people don't have, you're not, because we're called to have, or to hold marriage in honor, we're not allowed to have that kind of perspective on marriage at the same time, single people, you honor marriage well. You, you, you keep marriage respected in a godly way by encouraging those who have made marriage covenants to keep them. Knowing that both marriage and singleness are gifts of God, callings of God upon individuals. We hold our marriage vows highly, those of us who are married, and, and, we, and we pursue those with godly integrity. And if we are single, we encourage those who are married to keep their vows and not to see it as a hindrance to ministry. Let marriage be honored among all people. And the author says, keep the marriage bed undefiled. This call to keep the marriage bed pure restates the the call to honor marriage, but it it, it gives the added implication of guarding God's design for human sexual expression. The marriage bed is kind of a euphemism for marriage generally, but it has some other implications along with it. God's design for human sexuality is always within the safety and commitment of covenant marriage. Sexual expression is the most vulnerable that any of us will be with another person in this life. And God, knowing that, has has made it to be an expression that is guarded by the covenant of marriage. Sex is a blessing for the married. It's only to be experienced between two married persons. This has been God's design all throughout Scripture. And in this way, both adultery, which is, uh, which is sexual relation with someone who is not your husband or your wife, and fornication, which is sexual, uh, uh, sexual uh, experiences with people uh, that you are not married to yet. Both of these are prohibited throughout Scripture. This is not a a surprise to us. We see it in Exodus 20, Leviticus 18, Deuteronomy 22, Proverbs 6, 1 Corinthians 6. We could go on and on and on about the restatements of God's design for human sexuality. Keep the marriage bed pure. Honor God's design for marriage and sexual expression, and sexual expression as something that takes place within the confines of marriage. This is what kingdom citizens do. Because, as the author says, God judges those who unrepentantly abuse and pervert this good gift of God of sexuality. God judges those who unrepentantly abuse and pervert his gift of sexuality because sexual expression is not just a bodily function. It's a physical act with spiritual implications. Sex is not the same as picking up a sandwich from Subway on the way home from church today. Those are two totally different things, guys. We need to only look at the graphic comparison of of the people of Israel's idolatry in the Old Testament, the comparison of their idolatry to adultery and prostitution by God and His Word, to see the close spiritual link between uh, between what, uh, uh, what we do in sexual expression. God uses, in the context, in the course of His Word, the most intimate of human relational expressions to reflect the kind of relationship that He intends to have with His people Now, this does not mean that our relationship with God is a sexual one. That's preposterous. That's not what I'm saying. But it does imply that the exclusive commitment of God's people to him in heart, soul, and strength is just as serious as a husband's exclusive sexual commitment to his wife. So God's judgment upon the unrepentant fornicator and adulterer, fornicator is someone who has sex outside of marriage, before being married, an adulterer is someone who leaves the covenant of their marriage to have sex with somebody else. that's not their spouse. God's judgment upon the fornicator and the adulterer is severe because they profane. They make normal. They make plain. They make average the most sacred of human expressions. And they blaspheme its intended purpose of reflecting God's exclusive commitment to his people and vice versa. In all of this, friends, it is clear. The world around the Hebrews 2,000 years ago, the world in which they lived, had not honored the marriage covenant. They had not honored the marriage bed as good and holy gifts of God. And in that way, friends, we're not living in very different uh, circumstances than, than these brothers and sisters Those who are of the church of Jesus Christ, though, must honor and protect the marriage covenant and sexual expression within the confines of marriage because of its origin, because of its meaning, and because it reflects the character of God and exclusive commitment of salvation and worship between Him and His people. Letting marriage be held in honor and the marriage bed kept pure is about far more than just right behavior. It speaks to the manner of our worship and the seriousness of our commitment to God. Now, holding to this as Christians in a world that, that is still opposed to that, in a world where the, the current of, of society is moving against that, will be difficult. It will be hard. Young people, you who are in high school, middle school, college even, you know the difficulty, you know the challenge of holding to a biblical sexual ethic, a biblical ethic of, of marriage and sexuality. You know how hard that is. Because the whole world is telling you, this feels good. Love is love. If it feels right, why can't everybody just do this however they want to? You know how hard it is to say, but God has said different. I'm not going to lie to you and say that it's easy to stand against the flow of culture on on this biblical issue, on this aspect of what it means to live as kingdom citizens in the world. But I will tell you that you need to prepare to endure waves of resistance in your commitment to a biblical worldview of marriage and sexual expression. You need to be ready. You need to be ready to endure waves of resistance. You're not going to have the perfect answer that's going to change everybody's mind to see why God's design is best and their personal desires are not. But you will need to be ready to endure waves of resistance to what you hold to about God. When ships are at sea, and their motor is not running or their sails are not up, they almost always drop anchor. Because if you're not intentionally moving at sea, you'll find yourself very quickly in, in deep and serious trouble. A ship that does not ha- that has its sails wrapped up, that has its motor turned off, but does not have its anchor dropped, that, that has its anchor just lying on the deck, will either be sucked out to sea with the current and tossed about, be left adrift, adrift or will be taken by the waves and crashed into the rocks on the shore. Friend, you need to anchor your life on God's word and on what he has said is right and good because he has said that it is right and good. And know that if you pull that anchor up without any intention of moving in one direction or another, you will be either pulled out to sea morally or dashed against the rocks. And this is what is happening within the modern sort of uh, sexual revolution that we're observing in the world today. That people who say, I'm just going to go with the flow. Love is love, do what I want. These people are often those who are swept out to sea in relationships that are far different than what God says that we ought to or dashed against the rocks as victims of a revolution that is more than happy to use their destroyed lives as a means to an end of of achieving some political cause. The modern sexual revolution is leaving a, a, a massive wake of victims behind it. We need to be those who are anchored to the word of God who are prepared to endure waves of resistance and act as safe harbor for those who have been made victims of designs and intentions for sexual expression that are apart from God. Kingdom citizens live with commitment, particularly commitment to God's God's call, God's design for marriage and sexuality. But finally, kingdom citizens live with contentment. Charity, commitment, and contentment. Contentment is found in loving God more than things. Verses five and six of Hebrews 13 tell us this. Hebrews 13, five, keep your life free from the love of money has several parallels in scripture, but key among them are two. Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse 10, which says he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is all, this is also vanity. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now the point here of living as a kingdom citizen without a love for money is not that money is evil. That's not what Scripture is saying. Money is amoral. It's neither good nor bad. It can be used for good or evil purposes. But here what the author is saying is that a love of money, a desire for a passion for wealth, has the capacity to keep you from living contently in the kingdom of God. When we obsess over money, when we obsess over stuff, when we obsess over material possessions and what those things can bring us, we demonstrate ultimately that what we trust for meeting our needs and for making us happy is something other than God, something other than our Creator. It is not a virtue to be rich. And at the same time, it's not a sin to be poor. The amount of wealth that you have has no connection, no bearing on whether or not you're a lover of money. You could be a multi-billionaire like Jeff Bezos and be a lover of money. Or you could be the unnamed beggar at the corner of First and Gold in Albuquerque and still be a lover of money. The love of money is equally disastrous to both the wealthy and the poor because a love of money promises a life that will be full if only I had more money. You see how that's already self-defeating on its face. How much is enough? Well, the person who says, I'll be happy if I just have more, even as soon as they get more, their premise is still, I'll be happy if I have more. So the more they get, the more they're continually unhappy. And that is just as dangerous for the wealthy person as it is for the poor person. Instead, believers, kingdom citizens, those who have trusted Jesus by faith, are to find their contentment in that which does not fail or fade or rot. We are to find our satisfaction in that thing that never changes. We are to be content in the ever-present God and in that to know true satisfaction. The author cites from Joshua chapter 1 verse 5 when God says to that leader of Israel, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a promise of God to Joshua as the leader uh, of Israel is about to take the Israelites to conquer the land of Canaan. The promise there the the, the omnipotent uh, and omnipresent and imminent God provides all that we need and he withholds nothing and he withholds all things that would be detrimental to us i will never leave you nor forsake you find your contentment in me says god i'll give you everything that you need and i'll keep back everything that would be harmful to you so the author rounds out this call to contentment and this call to live as kingdom citizens with a collective prayer from psalm 118 verse 6 we read this as our call to worship this morning we can confidently say the lord is my helper i will not fear what can man do to me? This prayer affirms the help of God to everyone who calls on him. Contentment, satisfaction in life is possible apart from money or in an abundance of money. Contentment is possible for all who know the Lord, who know that he is near as a helper to all who seek him in faith. So, dear friends, as you are called as a kingdom citizen to to live with contentment, this morning, you need to ensure that your heart belongs to Christ and not to your desires. So long as your heart belongs to your desires, to, to things that, that make you satisfied physically for a moment, you will always be in a, in a place of disarray, a, a place of, 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 of mental wishy-washiness, uncertainty, So ensure that your heart belongs to Christ because He is the one who will never leave nor forsake. He is the one who is near to everyone who calls on Him in help. Ensure that your heart belongs to Christ and not to your desires so that you may live with contentment. Christian author Rosaria Butterfield writes in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says, A heart broken by Jesus asks the Lord to make Him godly, not bless His natural desires. A heart that is broken by Jesus prays, Lord, make me yours, not, Lord, give me what I want. If Your heart belongs to Christ. Your regular prayer day by day will be, Lord, make me yours, not, Lord, give me what I want. Kingdom citizens are fundamentally different in the attitudes of their heart when it comes to everything in life, as we've seen in these six verses. Kingdom citizens are radically God-centered and gospel-centered in all of their affections and desires. Their contentment in God leads them to use their wealth to help others and to see their poverty as occasion to trust God all the more. A God-centered, gospel-oriented heart sees that as significant as sex and marriage are, they are not ultimate, but that God is. And hearts like these delight They take joy in treating the good gifts and designs of God honorably as God has intended. Kingdom citizens know the reception of grace that God has given to us when we were strangers to Him. And it looks to others who are in need, others who are on the outs, and it says, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior... Our church, this community, this unshakable kingdom purchased by Christ opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, the mighty friend of sinners. Friend, are you a sinner outside the kingdom? Your life is not content. Your commitments are anything but biblical. You find yourself in need of charity and grace and love from someone, especially a a a God who is powerful to change your circumstances. Friend, to you who are, who are weary and tired from chasing after things of this world, to feel at home, find your home today in Christ. Find your home today in Jesus. Become a citizen of his kingdom. You do that not by acting better, not by getting your act together, not by being a better person. You become a citizen of his kingdom by saying, God, you are holy. You are perfect. I am sinful. I am outside the kingdom, and I've put myself there. But I recognize that you have sent your son, Jesus, to live a life without sin, to die in my place, to be raised from the dead in order to make me a citizen of your kingdom. So, Jesus, I am, I am I'm submitting to you as Lord of my life. Everything that I did before now is, is yours. I'm not going to pray, God, give me what I want. I'm praying, Jesus, make me yours. Friend, become a citizen of the kingdom today. Turn from sin and self. Trust Jesus by faith and enter into this unshakable kingdom where people live with charity, commitment, and contentment in an omnipresent and imminent God who loves us by sending his son. Do you need to trust Jesus today? If so, you come find me as soon as we dismiss. I'll be greeting folks outside. Take me aside and say, I need to know this Jesus. I need to become a citizen of the kingdom. Don't walk away from here today with any question about your status in relationship to God, but come to him by faith. Ask him to make you his and let him change your life to look like this. Let's pray together.